Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, everybody. So a uh, great one today. Just the best. The absolutely brilliant Dahlia Lithwick. No one better. Now, I... I say that even though I've said a number of times on this podcast that Heather McGee is my favorite guest. And let me clarify, all this is a conceit. You see, a comic conceit, like uh, a good one for a change. That's a, that's a conceit, because if the norm was that almost all of these shows were shitty, you wouldn't be listening, right? So a good one for a change, a comic conceit. Heather McGee, my my favorite guest, um, it's also a conceit, except it's a different kind of conceit because a good one for a change, the conceit is, of course, that isn't true. Heather, Jesus Christ, she's good. If you haven't listened to my Heather McGee podcast, just go listen, but not until you listen to this one because Dahlia Lithwick is the best. Dahlia is a senior editor at Slate, and uh, writes about the Supreme Court brilliantly, and there's a lot to talk about the Supreme Court these days, all of it very disturbing. I don't consider this a legitimate court. As far as I'm concerned, they stole two seats, one from Merrick Garland when they wouldn't take him up in 2016, supposedly on the principle that it was a presidential election year. Scalia died in February of 2016. And then (sighs) Coney Barrett, who they seated just eight or nine days before the 2020 election. And that's led to Dobbs and so much more. We're still in the middle of Mifepristone. That's gone now to the Fifth Circuit, which is not promising. Uh, There is the attack on the administrative state. Last session, they ruled that the EPA can't control CO2 emissions, overturning previous rulings by the court. And speaking of Mifepristone, the FDA approved it 20 years ago, 20 years ago. So if you're talking about attacking the administrative state, you're attacking the FDA, which approved a drug 20 years ago. And then there's the hilarious and deeply disturbing corruption. Uh, Clarence Thomas not reporting luxury vacations paid for by this billionaire, Harlan Crow. That's perfect. Perfect name. <laughs> Harlan Crow. I mean, we're talking about being flown on Crow's private jet to far-flung locations. Far-flung, by the way, is not Yiddish. Far-flung. It sounds Yiddish. It isn't. When when I say far-flung, far-flung locations like uh, the Indonesia archipelago, where Thomas and his wife Ginny spent nine days of island hopping to a volcanic archipelago on a super yacht staffed by a coterie of attendants. And 
uh, private chef. As we say in Minnesota, must be nice. And there's many other similarly luxurious vacations that uh, he's taken with this guy that, uh, you know, must be nice. And you might have heard this bullshit from some interview with Thomas on uh, some bullshit documentary. I prefer the RV parks. I prefer the Walmart parking lots to the beaches and things like that. There's something normal to me about it. I've come from regular stock, and I prefer that. See, uh, Thomas says he grew up very humbly, but nothing compared to my childhood. The Frankens lived in a porto potty, and my brother and I had to do our homework at night with a flashlight. I had to, I had to sit on his shoulders and shine the flashlight down while we did our homework. So all I can say about Thomas's childhood must be nice. Ugh, God. Okay. Dahlia and I discuss a lot of stuff, and it's, it's a disturbing one. Uh, we start talking about the Trump town hall, and it gets worse from there. Uh, but it's also a great one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You're my second favorite guest. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> Stop. No, I, that's, that's, I just love Heather and I love you too. And I love you less, Dahlia. <laughs> a little, a little slightly less. 
Um, so, yes, you missed uh, the Trump uh, press conference, huh? Or not press conference. What that was? That was a town hall. Was Boy, it was not a press conference. Well, it kind of was. Too bad. <laughs> no, a, a press conference isn't always just correcting a lie. And, and it was constant lying. And then I, I, I looked up some fact checks later, but all of them just had like six lies. And there were like a hundred lies. It was just a constant stream of lies. And my favorite um, was that um, our United States military has run out of ammunition. We've given so much ammunition to Ukraine that we've run out of ammunition. The Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, we have all run out of ammunition. <laughs> and I, I wish he hadn't said that because... We are very vulnerable to attack uh, now. But it was just all crazy lies. And then also it was uh, supposedly independent or uh, people hadn't made up their mind. Republicans hadn't made up their mind and they were all just worshipful and screaming. And it was sickening. Yeah. And his like killing the baby at birth. You know, I don't know how long after the birth he thinks we we still consider it's okay to kill a baby. <laughs> I I think that the most interesting stuff I saw the morning after is from all the people who study authoritarianism and like fascism. Because what they say is, first of all, just generally doing a live fact check is stupid because there's just no way to fact check him in real time. And even if she tried to get him on little things like the election wasn't stolen, Mr. Trump. <laughs> there were 60 court cases that, but even if she tried to get him a couple times, the thing that these folks are reminding us, and I think this is maybe worth surfacing, is that the performance of being able to lie and being checked and not caring and doubling down on the lie is like a real cornerstone of how autocrats do it. In other words, it's not him against facts. That's the mistake you make. It's him against people who believe in facts. And every single time he either speaks over her or he reasserts the same lie that she's called him out on, what he's actually doing is proving that lying is his superpower and that he doesn't care. And I think that's kind of a useful frame because we keep thinking oh, this is, you know, marketplace of ideas and she's going to smoke out his lies and the listeners are going to be persuaded. Like the listeners love the fact that he doesn't care about truth. And each time he performs that, they love it more. That I think is, is very profound and true. And I can't get my brain to believe it. And I was watching this thing and I was thinking CNN said they brought in all these people who hadn't made up their mind, but that clearly just wasn't true. They were all cheering pretty much anything he said, including uh, calling Eugene Carroll a, a whack job and Caitlin Collins a nasty person. Truth doesn't matter anymore, right? It doesn't matter anymore. That is correct. Or at least a lot to a lot, a lot, a lot of people. And that's just hard for me to accept, but that's I, I have to adapt here, right? I think that the other tiny manifestation of this that doesn't 
rise to the level of what we saw on CNN is that he, by a unanimous jury in Manhattan, they all find that he's a liar, right? He tries to sort of say, oh, these are, you know, the tea-sipping elites, you know, the kale eaters that populate Manhattan with their yoga mats. And in fact, that's not the jury at all. The jury is six men, and the jury is a lot of people from Trump country, upstate. It's interesting because when he dismisses the fact-finding of a unanimous jury that both found him to be a sexual abuser and a defamer, right? A, a person who lies under a really high standard, like the standard for, for defamation is almost unmeetable. And he went ahead and met it. And for him to dismiss them as part of some lefty conspiracy of liars, it's, it's the same thing he's doing by setting himself against CNN. He's saying that entire network is a cabal of liberal liars and he exists to assert power over them. That's the same thing he's doing with that jury. He's saying, these are not regular people like you. These were handpicked, you know, liberal Marxist communists who hate me. And I just think it's worth, just to answer your question, this is not a war on whatever truth it is they found. It's a war on the people who find truth or seek truth. And that's really next level creepy authoritarian play. It's a way of discrediting, in CNN's case, the entire media. And in the case of this jury, he's saying, I don't care what Fonnie Willis does eventually. I don't care what Jack Smith does eventually because those jurors are not your people. They're liars. So that that sets that up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I had this thing after, uh, and I asked this of Dan Balls. My first question to him was, when the Manhattan charge came in on on uh, you know paying off the porn star, I thought, okay, of course his his support's going to go up among Trump people because they they're thinking, well, that's really thin, and it's not that, that that's ridiculous. But isn't su support for him going to go down as one after one after one of these, especially like Georgia and maybe the documents, but also January 6th, won't support in the Republican Party go down? And then I thought to myself, maybe I'm wrong. And I said, what do you think? And he said, I think maybe you're wrong. And last night, after watching last night, I'm thinking I'm wrong. Am I wrong? I think you're wrong. I thought, listen, President Biden's tweet was, do you want four more years of this, right? I mean, I think that there is for the reality-based community, this reflexive sense that like, oh, he's, you know, a <laughs> jury just unanimously found as a matter of fact and law that he is a defamer and a sexual abuser, his support's going to go down. And it doesn't seem to. I think that, you know, you saw an enthusiastic audience on Wednesday night applauding as he made fun of the victim in that trial. Like they thought it was hilarious. Applauding as he kind of winkingly said Mike Pence kind of deserved what he got on January 6th. So I don't think that this wish casting, oh, it's just going to happen. You know, at some point it'll go too far. I think the thing I'm trying to say, and this is incredibly depressing, is that not only is 
the fact that he's lying, the fact that he's making fun <laughs> of Eugene Carroll, the fact that he's saying he's going to pardon all of the the insurrectionists who, you know, stormed the Capitol and in fact killed people. I, I think that what he's doing is not just seeding the ground as we just agreed, for the future thing that comes, right, for the next thing. But he's doing this attack on institutions of truth, whether it's the press, whether it's the jury in this case, whether it's Alvin Bragg, right? Alvin Bragg, like, brings uh, an indictment, not because it's a thing he carries around in his back pocket. It's because after doing a crap ton of work, they determined that he'd broken uh, New York financial crimes laws. So what he does is he time and time again makes these claims that, you know, it's a witch hunt, everyone's out to get him, that the people he's lying about are in fact the liars. And I think what I'm trying to say is it's a one-way ratchet because every time he does this, he discredits- one-way ratchet. Yes. I like that. You like that? Yeah, Heather McGee doesn't say one way ratchet. Um I, oh, I think that okay. it's a it's a way of as he goes laying down tracks for the next institution he's going to discredit. And I don't think the aggregate effect is what we think it is. The walls are closing in on Donald Trump. I think the aggregate effect is the walls are kind of crumbling because he's blowing them up as he goes. I saw that John Cornyn, after the Eugene Carroll verdict, said he can't be our nominee, but it was kind of him. <laughs> I didn't hear a lot of other Republican. So they're all, I guess he just got reelected for six years and probably isn't worried. Maybe he felt he could do that. I liked the candidates who declared who would say things like Pence said, well, that's, you know, for really for him to answer. No, we just asked you if, <laughs> if this bothers you that he was convicted of sexual abuse and defamation. Well, I think that you should really ask him about that. I mean, this is how he got nominated in the first place, right? No one would go after him who was running against him because they were afraid of him. Right, because he's a bully. Yeah. Well, they're afraid of his supporters, too. And, and remember in 16, it was all like Cruz and others who thought, well, I'm I'm not going to attack him. I'm going to let, you know, Jindal attack him or Bush attack him. I'll let the weak ones attack him and get wiped out by him. And then then I'll hang in there. And who's ever still remaining will get his supporters and be the nominee. We couldn't possibly nominate Donald Trump. <laughs> but isn't that what happened last time? I think so. And I think the other imperceptible change, I think the first one you're identifying is right, which is just Republicans running through the halls of Congress saying, like, I don't know, I I didn't read the jury, you know, form. I have no idea, right? Like, I don't know. And I think they've perfected the art of like running away and waving their hands and getting in the elevator. But I think the thing that is this other almost imperceptible shift that you're you're sort of flicking at that has really happened is that everybody thought it was a joke in 2016. They were like, he's not a real candidate. This is ridiculous. Like, this is reality show politics. And so people sort of didn't take this as seriously as they should. I think the reason that I'm so mad at CNN 
is that if you learned nothing else in the intervening years, take this seriously. And so the idea that, oh, you know, he's he's a you know serious candidate, therefore we have to put him in front of an audience of people who applaud, you know, when he makes sex abuse jokes. Like I think what's scary is that we understand now that this could happen and that what happens when Donald Trump gets elected is the travel ban and family separation and other horrible things. And instead of saying, wow, that's a genuine existential threat, uh, we're like, okay, let's watch it again. Good show. I I think that, you know, if if you thought the last one was a genuine existential threat, the, the first administration, this one just starts where the last one ended. He doesn't pick any serious people to be in the cabinet and to be around him. And he uses the Justice Department in the way he wants to. And I mean, we're we're looking at the end of democracy. I think that's right. <laughs> and I think that I love that adorable nervous laugh when you say the sentence. <laughs> end of democracy. Waka waka. Uh-huh. Um I, I think the other thing you and I have talked about this is, you know, all around the country, we are seeing state houses ending democracy, right? Whether it's changing the threshold for getting something on the ballot, whether it's saying, oh, you know, Fonnie Willis, we're taking away her power to try cases. Uh, right, right. The the uh, Georgia state legislature has talked about doing that, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I think they they really have. And this is happening, by the way, around the country that we're seeing particularly black female prosecutors. Uh, Sherilyn Eiffel said this on my podcast a few weeks ago, and it really gave me chills that black women prosecutors are actually being stripped of their power to try certain cases and bring certain cases. But this is also where is that happening? Where 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 has that happened exactly? Well, she mentioned Fonnie Willis in Georgia. She mentioned Florida. Well, let's talk about what exists precisely what that was, which is Georgia legislators were talking about essentially the legislature being able to fire or get rid of uh, prosecutors, county prosecutors, right? Yeah, I think that this is it's not just in Georgia. And the way she started this conversation, just for what it's worth, is that Mitch McConnell gets very, very sick And typically, he would be replaced by a nonpartisan process, but he has put a process in place in Kentucky that means he will be (laughs) replaced uh, by a Republican. Uh, So her example that she was giving, and this is, by the way, of a piece- Well, normally the governor would appoint someone to take the place. And and in this case, it's a Democratic governor in, in Kentucky. So they changed the process yes. in the state legislature? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay, and, and of course. This is, of course. Sherilyn wrote a, a kind of staggering piece about this, and it's happening in a weird, creepy subterranean way, and we're not connecting the dots. But it's of a piece with Tennessee stripping three duly elected legislators of Only the power. Only two. Well, two, yes, it, yes, eventually, yes, two. And uh, it's of a piece with, you know, around the country, these efforts by red states to say, we're no longer interested in what's called, you know, democracy suppression, right? We're not talking about gerrymandering. We're not talking about voter ID. We're actually taking away powers from duly elected officials to do their job. And that's happening all around the country. And 
And often it's happening in response to groups in states trying to get abortion protections or gun protections. And so they're just saying, oh, yeah, no, now we're going to you need a supermajority to do that. Now you need. And so I think what Sherilyn said to me and what I'm trying very poorly to explain is that we're always kind of fighting the last war. We think this is about people in Georgia have to, you know, stand in line and they can't get water. This is so beyond suppressing votes. This is saying voters vote for somebody and then that person can't do their job, which is fundamentally democracy subversion and not suppression. And I guess I'm just trying to connect that up. It's a a version of, you know, when we talk about the existential stuff that's coming, that independent state legislature case, you know, more V. Now, has that gone away because the North Carolina Supreme Court flipped and uh, they reversed the old gerrymander? It, It hasn't gone away. The court just asked for briefing from both parties on it. I suspect the court may kick it away because it's actually, I mean, it was a dumb case to begin with. What happened is the old Democratic majority Supreme Court had thrown out a gerrymandered map that the Republican state legislature had put together that was just ridiculous. And then the Republican state legislature sued to the Supreme Court, went to the Supreme Court and said, uh, the state Supreme Court doesn't have power over us. We, 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 the state legislatures should have all the power to determine voting rules in the state. And now this new Republican Supreme Court has upheld the egregiously gerrymandered map that the Republican state legislature had put together. Was, right? On exactly right. That, that. Okay. Well said. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's it's, it's that the state Supreme Court has zero power to intervene in anything to do with elections under the Constitution, and that the state essentially can do whatever the hell it wants. It can draw whatever maps it wants, and there is nothing to check that because the state's power, the the, the legislative branch's power over elections, is plenary. And if the court were to grant that, which I think as we are now saying, it looks like the court's going to kick it away because <laughs> the court flipped and they were like, oh, this gerrymander's fine. And so now it's- That's, that's what happened. Yeah. That case may go away. It may which, go away. But but know. there are four justices who have in earlier cases signaled approval of that theory that state legislatures have plenary unreviewable power. And it's just, I, I guess I'm, I'm lining it up with all these other examples I'm giving of, you know, gerrymandered red state legislatures essentially saying, yeah, democracy for you is over. And that because it's happening in these kind of weird granular ways in all sorts of different ways, we're not, I think, clocking the big picture, which is there's a hundred different ways to make voters' rights go away. And thinking that it only happens on election day is kind of missing the very pernicious shift that's happening right now. When did the Supreme Court decide that it couldn't get involved in partisan gerrymandering. In other words, it couldn't look at partisan gerrymandering going like, no, you can't do that. That was the Rucho case in 2019. And 2019. Kind of hilariously, 
what the court said is, we don't need to get involved with that because state Supreme Courts can take care of it. So here we are a couple of years later, and the claim is, oh, but also state Supreme Courts can't get involved in that either. It's a sort of example of the slippery slope where the court says, you know, we're getting rid of Section 4 of the voting rights in Shelby County, but you can use Section 2. And then this term now, of course, they're doing uh, a case that will get rid of Section 2. So it's that kind of Lucy football stuff that the court has gotten really deft at doing. But at least it goes to the Supreme Court, right? Thank God. Thank God we have a bulwark <laughs> to protect. So if the uh, state Supreme Court has no power over it now to overturn an incredibly awful partisan gerryman, at least it goes to the Supreme Court to make that decision. Or does it? As you may, yes, it does. That's one of the critiques um, that a lot of people who hate this Morvey Harper case are like, wait, so the Supreme Court is putting itself in the business of reviewing state legislative election practices. But but actually, it's kind of a funny coda to the, you may recall, Al, when we talked after Dobbs came down, the court said, hey, and we are officially out of the abortion business. We're going to send that to the states. And here we are, <laughs> less than a year later, with the court involved in, you know, an effort to pull FDA approval of uh, one of two drugs in the medication abortion protocol. So my general rule at this point is that if the Supreme Court says they're out of the X business, they're really in the X business. So where are we on the X, the mess of... Preston, Preston, Mifepristone, you did it. Oh, good. Okay. So, where are we on that now? They what? What did the court decide? The the the. So we had a, a judge in the Fifth Circuit, uh, Matthew Kazmarek. Uh, in case folks are wondering why he got this case, it's because if you put a coin in the vending machine in Amarillo, Texas, the only judge you will get like a Snickers bar, is Matthew Kaczmarek. So he gets this case. It's deliberately filed in his jurisdiction. Um, as people will recall, he was like, yeah, Mifepristone, you know, yes, it was. <laughs> it got FDA approval 23 years ago, but that's over now. And um, tried to, gave a week, uh, at which point it was going to be pulled uh, nationwide. And then we had a Fifth Circuit panel uh, intervene and say, we're not going to actually do away with it altogether. We're going to go back to the 2016 regulations, which were very, very onerous. It required doctor's visits, multiple visits. It was very, very uh, onerous and unnecessary. And that was the state of play until a couple of weeks ago when the U.S. Supreme Court in another one of its shadow docket, unsigned, inscrutable um, stays said, no, we're going to go back to the status quo. So this case gets kicked back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, which will have to actually make some decisions about it. But they announced the panel this week, and it's not a great panel for reproductive freedom. And uh, I guess the other little coda is that Justice Alito, uh, we don't know what the vote was to stay it. We know that Justice But, but he said something. He he, yeah, he did one of had his, a little, hissy fit. his little grumpy grams that he does. Um, and he <laughs> hilariously singled out all the people on the court who were making him mad. And he name checked uh, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan and Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett for disappointing him. So just weirdly, all women, who knows? But um, he and Justice Thomas clearly would have um, allowed Mifepristone to go off the market. But he didn't, not Brown Jackson, he didn't criticize her? She hasn't written about this yet, but give him time. Give him time. Oh, okay. 
and then but we had a, a different uh, court say that we we want to keep this a myth of Prestone, right? And but it, and all isn't this about what like can the FDA do its job? Isn't the Food and Drug Administration, which that's who decides what drugs are, you know, safe and all that stuff, not courts, right? That used to be the rule, but it also used to be the rule that, you know, states would determine their own gun regulations. Now the Supreme Court does it. We used to have, you know, school boards determining their own, you know, church state accommodations. Now the Supreme Court does it. I mean, the Supreme Court is a kind of wood chipper for constitutional doctrine and, you know, purporting to be like judicial humility and balls and strikes. What they're in fact doing is taking settled precedent. And I know you and I've talked about this a hundred times that everybody can rely on and saying, yeah, no, that's not the law anymore, but we'll let you know when we figure out what the law is. And Maybe the most important thing I could say about any of this is that if folks are reading the accounts of hospitals in Texas that have to now wait uh, until a woman bleeds out, until she is septic, until uh, her blood pressure drops to the point that she's almost dead before they can intervene. The point of all this is not just chilling providers, right? Making sure that every provider in the country doesn't know what the law is today and the FDA isn't sure what the law is this week. It's making sure that that sense of like, it's all unsettled. I can't figure it out. I don't presently know how to construct a legal regime to approve, you know, abortifacients. Has has someone been prosecuted yet for performing abortion when a mother's health and life was in danger? Has anyone been prosecuted for that yet? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm going to confess that I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I mean, there's been a chilling effect. And as you say, there's been a lot of women facing very dangerous situations and and not not being addressed and being scared. There are physicians leaving the practice. We, you know, are hearing shocking reports of uh, physicians just saying, I can't be, um, you know, an emergency uh, physician or an obstetrician in the state of Texas because I don't know when I'm going to get sued. But there's this unbelievable lawsuit where a guy went after his ex-wife's, now ex-wife's three friends who helped her get a medication abortion pill after Dobbs, immediately after Dobbs, and he went after them. And his evidence is the texts that they shared. And it's a stunning, stunning, stunning case. Jonathan Mitchell, the guy who cooked up SB8, the Texas vigilante bill, is one of the lawyers in this case. But think of what it means to be checking your estranged wife's texts with her friends and using that as evidence that they colluded uh, uh, to murder your child. And then it goes one step further. Last week, we found out he actually went into her purse, found the medication, let her go ahead and take it. And now (laughs) it's going after the friends in court. So like the whole purpose here, in addition to chilling professionals who are trying to provide service, is terrorizing pregnant people so that their friends are afraid to help them. And everybody is afraid about what they say or what they put in a text, because someday you could be on the hook, as these women are. 
for aiding and abetting a murder. That's where we are. And I think uh, I don't like to be the bearer of like super sad news, but the component of these abortion regulations that is surveilling speech and conduct should like make all our eyebrows be on fire. Okay, so far this hasn't been a lot of fun in terms of, uh, uh, well, dark stuff can be fun and you make it as fun as possible. (laughs) But... (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Dahlia Lithwick. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're back with the great Dahlia Lithwick. You're talking about balls and strikes. You heard balls, I heard balls and strikes, and that made me think of uh, Robert's. I, I, I've made the case that he's the worst because he doesn't call balls and strikes. So he is uh, the chief justice, and we're seeing all this uh, money and gifts and vacations flowing to the Thomas family. Robert seems to be not caring at all, and he won't testify. Uh, let me ask you about that. When When the Judiciary Committee asked him to testify, and he said no. Is there any precedence for that either way? His claim in his little letter back to the Judiciary Committee is that it would violate judicial independence and the separation of powers for him to come testify in this ethics hearing last week. And first of all, Justice... (laughs) have been testifying before Congress from the jump. And uh, Roberts' health has testified, as have other justices. So this was one of those things where it was like, I'm just going to wave my hands around and say judicial independence. And that erases the fact that people have been testifying in front of Congress for a long time. But the more interesting slash troubling thing about this is the thing you started with, which is John Roberts keeps pretending that he actually has no power to do anything, that he's just, you know, minding this door and that the eight other justices are kind of nine, you know, that, that they're all nine independent law firms and that there's nothing he can do or say to force them to conform to the rules. That doesn't seem to be true. I mean... What happened in the Fortis case? Um, Right. That's exactly the thing. In 1969, Fortis, who is, right, a a liberal, first is charged with, you know, doing $20,000 legal work from this stock manipulator's 
family foundation. Then he took $15,000 to teach some classes at American University. Okay. That's the, that, those are the stakes, right? And Chief Justice Earl Warren, also a liberal, essentially forces Fortas off the court. He and the other justices just sit down with Fortas and they're like, the court's welfare and effectiveness are more important than anything. And they forced him to resign. Does Roberts know this history? <laughs> I mean, I haven't discussed it with him. Um, if folks want to read a really good book, uh, Adam Cohen's amazing book, Supreme Inequality, goes through not just the TikTok of how they get him off the court, but the ways in which this whole thing is engineered by Nixon, who's trying to get liberals off the court so he can replace them. And Nixon is sending his actual attorney general to go have meetings with Earl Warren saying, like, this guy's going to jail. Here's the dossier. Like, you better do something. So the idea and I'm not suggesting that Biden should send Merrick Garland to rough up the chief justice. But I am saying in 1969, the court looked around and said this fairly trivial violation is so bad for the court's effectiveness and for public confidence in the court that we're going to leave our friend to twist and just like throw him out. And here we have all these years later, you know, half million dollar luxury travel, you know, his mom's house paid for by Arlen Crow rent free, the grand nephew's tuition. None of this is disclosed. And then at the end of last week, oh, by the way, Leonard Leo arranges to have Ginny Thomas paid $25,000 through Kelly Conway's polling company with a note that says, quote, no mention of Ginny. And this stuff is like, eh, you know, justice got a justice. I don't know. This is the maniacal laughter of the distressed. Now, first of all, the guy who paid for most of this is Harlan Crow. Okay. He doesn't have to, as far as I'm concerned, have business before the court. He's a billionaire to have an interest in conservative justices because everything this court does helps billionaires, right? I mean, in other words, he doesn't have to have a case before the court for this to be improper (laughs) because any billionaire (laughs) knows that this conservative court is pretty much in his interest. Does he actually have actual stuff before the court or does he um, just have a general interest in conservatives doing well or bribing them or whatever you want to say it is? You know, Sheldon Whitehouse would say not only does he have business before the court, his business is the court, right? He's been pouring money into um, different projects, front groups uh, associated with Leonard Leo, who, you know, not just at the Federalist Society, but at all these different groups uh, have been, you know, pouring tons and tons of money into judicial nominations, right, into making sure that Merrick Garland doesn't get hearings, into making sure that Justice Alito and Thomas and later uh, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh Uh, And Barrett all gets seated. So there's part of it that is, you know, his business is the court. It's reshaping the court. And he's put a ton of money into that. But even right now, there are three cases at the court where the Manhattan Institute has amicus briefs. And you know whose wife is a trustee of the Manhattan Institute? (gasps) Why? It's Kathy Crow, wife of Harlan Crow. So he 
on both fronts kind of fails in both ways family family he is not just pouring money into reshaping the court and by the way some of leonard leo's front groups are working on that issue we talked about earlier which is vote suppression and democracy suppression so they're working on that too but then also yes there's business before the court not just because as you say he benefits from the knock-on effects of having the court attack the regulatory state right in the EPA case or other cases he benefits from citizens united he had uh, uh one of the front groups that that actually paid the money to Ginny Thomas in that um most recent scandal in 2012 had an amicus brief in Shelby County. So like, it's all so gross. And the arguments that are made, which is like, oh, but they're really close friends, so it's okay. Or, well, you know, it's unless you can show that Clarence Thomas changed his vote after Harlan Crow like dropped Scrooge McDuck bags of money on his desk, then there's no corruption here. And all of that is just false. Clarence Thomas, if he's going to take all these gifts He has to disclose them and he doesn't disclose them because he has a theory of disclosure, Al, that he's had for years and years, which is fabulous. People don't have to disclose. That's his (laughs) Citizens United opinion. That's been his opinion all along. He thinks he's too fancy for disclosure. And and, uh, we can't hear Robert's opinion on that because he won't testify. I think Robert's in the most generous construction of the problem, and by the way, I agree with your you know, remarks on how dangerous he has been to the country and how dangerous it is to hold him out as a centrist moderate when he has been a juggernaut against voting rights, a juggernaut for money in politics, a juggernaut on uh, doing away with race protections in this country and reproductive rights. So like, let's call him what he is, which is an incredibly conservative political actor who happens to now be at the center of the court. But I do think that even if I was being fair and said he's just worried about protecting the institutional legitimacy and the reputational interests of the court, like that stuff is in the toilet. Those numbers are lower than they've been since polling began. Well, also, if he cares about the reputation of the court, then he would get rid of Thomas. I mean, but he doesn't want to lose uh, a conservative. Well, yeah, because Biden is the president and we have the Senate, so... But I mean, it, it, the reputation of the court, and as you say, it's in the toilet anyway. Where, where, where are the approval ratings of the court now? I, I mean, it depends on which polls you look at. Uh, you know, they're in the low 40s, the high 30s, but, you know, they've dropped precipitously in just a few short years. And even, you know, Republicans and independents who actually like the doctrinal changes going after the court don't like the misconduct they're seeing because, believe it or not, this isn't a monarchy. And for the court to say that judicial independence means that every other federal judge, Article Three, life-tenured judge, has to adhere to a code of ethics, but we don't. Nobody thinks that's okay. And it's really interesting because I think this is the place where We've developed this kind of learned helplessness, Al, where we forget all of the extensive history of uh, Professor Steve Vladek at University of Texas has been documenting how many times in the past centuries 
Congress has exerted control over the court. They added seats. They took away seats. They forced the justices to ride circuit. They had to like get on ponies and drive around and sleep in barns uh, and hear cases. Congress has added to the court's jurisdiction, changed the court's jurisdiction. So the idea that we like passed some threshold and now the Congress can't do anything to touch the court and that we all have to just accede to that is like for a country that was like running away from monarchic thinking, we kind of are in the soup of monarchic thinking about the court. Yeah. And the, the, the horrible thing about this is such an illegitimate court. And I was there when they wouldn't, you know, take up Merrick Garland. You know, McConnell said, well, there's already been there already been votes cash in New Hampshire. We we're in the in the middle of an election. And there had been a, a New Hampshire primary started. You can't confirm a justice in the middle of an election year. And then Coney Barrett is sworn in, what, nine days, eight days before the election. Right. Hundreds and thousands of votes had already been cast when she. Yep. Oh, millions, probably early. Yeah. 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 Millions of votes. And actually for president, not for a nominee for a party for president but for precedent. <laughs> and they don't square that. They never square. They only square it by lying backward. Oh, no, 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 no. That was about um, the fact that we had the majority, right? And you don't have to take up someone if you're in the majority, although that had never happened before. Yeah, but you didn't say that at the time. Anyway, so th there's no chance that Roberts is going to do anything about this. Do you think there'll be more of these coming out? I do. And it's probably there be, right? a whole separate conversation. <laughs> but I think that, and I say this with like some chagrin, uh, you know, the Supreme Court press corps has not been breaking these stories. These are investigative reporters that are treating the court as a political institution and they're scraping data and they're finding the receipts and they found the Harlan Crow, Leonard Leo. How do they do that? This is such cool, this ProPublica, right? ProPublica broke this story. Actually, the photo of the picture of the painting, the Harlan Crow painting, um, actually was found by um, Lisa Graves. Uh, and, Wait a minute, uh, I don't even know about the painting. What's the painting? Oh, you've seen the painting. The painting is the thing that ProPublica put out there when the first Harlan Crow stories were breaking that showed Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas and Leonard Leo and Mark Paoletta. And a guy called Bo Rutledge sitting around in Adirondack chairs, smoking cigars and chatting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and it's all sort of somewhat amazing. And uh, I think Lisa Graves, creator of uh, True North Research, had found a photo of that painting last year, but then ProPublica published it uh, with these stories about Harlan Crow. But like... Now that it's going to be treated like a regular institution where you can go through and find the photos of Justice Thomas posing on the super yacht in the T-shirt, there's going to be a ton more of this. And I think it's not an accident that we went from these are the half million dollar cruises. This is the unreimbursed and undisclosed flights on private jets. Wasn't the, wasn't the video of, of uh, Thomas saying like, you know, I like humble vacations because that's Walmart, how I grew the Walmart up. Parking lot, yeah. Walmart and the uh, yeah the trailer parks. I think that 
it's not an accident that a whole bunch of publications that have covered the court as a sort of oracular institution that doesn't need to be scrutinized are now hiring teams of investigative reporters to sort of scrape what's out there. And I think we're going to find a lot more. And I think in addition to that, let's remember that the U.S. Supreme Court in the next six weeks is going to hand down decisions, mm. probably ending affirmative action, probably sure. you know, ending the Indian Child Welfare Act, making it okay Fuck. for uh, web designers to refuse service to same-sex couples, uh, making President Biden's student debt relief program go away under the major questions doctrine right. the That's clean water huge. act is in the in the you know crosshairs there's so much going on as is uh, section 2 of the voting rights act so all these things are going to keep happening and i think the question is like are we going to just sit there and be like oh well shruggy emoji you know sucks that our grandkids won't have a clean water act but nothing to be done or are we going to start to like very very seriously talk about what happens when the court refuses to accept reform and uh, the public demands it. And I and I think we're at that tipping point, Al. I don't know if you feel that, but I think the public is kind of getting tired of being told that everybody follows the rules except Clarence Thomas. But what's the follow-up on that? What can be done to reverse that? Because Roberts isn't going to do anything. I mean, I know that Sheldon has talked about uh, the circuit court judges trying to get together and do something. Is that is that part of it? Yes. There's this thing called the Judicial Conference, which is the body that regulates the courts. And uh, Senator Whitehouse and others have asked them to take responsibility for this. And by the way, there was um, some breaking news late last week uh, that judges in the Judicial Conference had been complaining about Clarence Thomas's disclosure, uh, you know, for 10 years now and nothing changed. There's also uh, three different bills put forth that would force the court to adopt a code of ethics. And maybe improbably, uh, Angus King and Susan Collins have put forth a bill uh, essentially saying the court has to adopt its own ethics rules. But this isn't nothing, considering this was just called crack pottery five years ago. (laughs) The idea that there's some sense that if the court doesn't clean up its act, Congress is either going to try to force them to or try to force them to force themselves to or force the judicial conference to do it. But I think that what I'm sensing is that that willingness to accede to just doing nothing seems to be going away and that the more pressure the court feels, the more you get these kind of howling Justice Alito responses of, you just want us all to die. Like, you just want there to be threats on our lives. Shouldn't Justice Alito be like the happiest guy in the world? Shouldn't he be like, I got rid of Roe v. Wade? Shouldn't he be like, everything I've ever wanted is happening? Yeah, that's one of the things Donald Trump Trump took credit for, too. He said he got rid of Roe v. Wade. Um, But yeah, you would think that, like, well, Justices he, Thomas he, and Alito are in the catbird seat. Uh, you would think they, you know, are living their best lives right now. But what we keep hearing is this, I think, reckless conflating of any criticism of the court with, and you want there to be death threats against the justices. And because they can't separate their own sense of vulnerability. And by the way, this is <laughs> Leonard Leo's defense 
of why uh, he said, keep this money that I am paying to Ginny Thomas's organization off the books is because literally his defense was, quote, knowing how disrespectful, malicious, and gossipy people can be, I have always tried to protect the privacy of Justice Thomas and Ginny. Literally, the defense is we're grifting in secret because you all are mean to them. And it's like the disclosure rules make it really hard for us to grift. So we have to like not disclose is not a super credibility enforcing message to be pushing out there. And so I think there will be tons more of this. I think it's all going to be icky. I think that the chief justice has indicated that he is going to do nothing about it. And that, in fact, he's going to cloak himself in this idea that uh, judicial independence demands that nothing be done about it. And then, like I said, I think we're going to have a shit show this spring when all these cases come down. And all of this is kind of heading off a cliff. And whether something or someone can reverse it, or whether like you and I are to blame for having this conversation, I think is kind of that's where this is going. This is this is a pretty grim time. And I think um, I think that that feeling of powerlessness and helplessness is like a huge contributor to the problem because it makes us feel like there's nothing to do but watch Netflix. And I think we have to really like stop thinking that, you know, it's just like too bad that the king <laughs> gets to do what he wants. I think we have to remember that, you know, the the nature of I really this I will say in some earnestness, but like the nature of checks and balances is not just that the nine justices are not the only people who have skin in the game when it comes to the court's institutional legitimacy. The other branches have skin in the game. They have an obligation to check the court, but also the rest of us have skin in the game too. We have an obligation to make sure that a credible court is protecting democracy. This is not like, you know, for the kings and princes to figure out like on the third floor of the palace. This is like the work of our time is to say like this actually for all the gajillion reasons we talked about from the clean water act to uh you know a- abortion and guns like this idea that there's nothing to be done means that like we will keep losing but how do we do it is it is it just by electing democrats i mean how do we do this how do we make this bring this pressure to bear I think it's a couple of things. I think it is realizing that democracy isn't a game that's played every other year at elections, right? I think it's how did we lose state houses? How did state houses having been captured by, you know, extreme, extreme iterations of the Republican Party turn around and start taking away rights from voters, as we discussed earlier, right? I think it's looking at these kind of intractable questions around gerrymandering, one person, one vote, you know, voter suppression. Like, how do we have 75, 80% approval ratings in this country for background checks and for, you know, fundamental reproductive freedom? And we're losing all those things. And those are not issue problems. Those are democracy problems. And, you know, I think we talked like for the first third of this conversation about if you 
can get the levers of democracy to work to subvert democracy, which is not just what we're seeing in red states. The Supreme Court is blessing it, right? When the Supreme Court says in Rucho, don't worry because state Supreme Courts are going to protect democracy. And here we are a couple of years later and the state Supreme Courts are being benched. Like the court is an active player in subversion of democracy. And so I think we have to like get in that game. And if that means finding independent, you know, gerrymandering reformers in your state, or if it means, you know, caring about your state AG race, or if it means, you know, those kids in in Tennessee who just walked out of school until their representatives were reinstated. Like this is all democracy stuff. Believe it or not, it's doable. We know how to do it. And by the way, we've been here before, right? In the 60s, we've been here before uh, in Reconstruction. Like, this is doable. But I think we just have to stop thinking that watching the CNN town hall is like the limit of our participation in this thing. Well, thanks, Dahlia. And uh, I'll see you soon, I hope. And of course, when when in June, when the court renders its all these decisions, please come back. Okay. It is always, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. 
Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.